How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, morality, mutilation, and moxie. Tonight, we're starting what will hopefully be the first in a full series on Saw. Jamie had some good names for this series, and then we kept pushing it off. Originally, it was supposed to be like the Saw Days of Summer. Uh, I was trying to put in Saw Get To Me. I don't think any of those are going on the poster, folks, at home, but you can imagine. Just put your own Saw pun here. Well, if it's summer, it must be Saw, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That one, yeah, that was pretty good. I like my stupid ones more, though. Uh, oh, anyways, yeah, but... Yeah. I'm your host, Cody. Uh, joining me today for this bop in a movie are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Who names their kids Zep? Good question. It sounds like a 1950s nickname. Oh, what if Zep, uh, it turns out, was actually one of the Bowery boys? Is there <laughs> is there, like, a biblical Zep? Like, Zepadiah on the mountain? No. Is it short for Zeppelin? What is Zep for? Oh, unfortunately, I, I thought Google was going to help me out. Uh, there's a little option. What is Zep for? And I expand the window, and it's actually explaining the Zep app, which was no, a maze fun. fit, you, which is way do, less fun. Do you think anybody called him Zepperino? Zeppy boy. God, no wonder he wanted to kill that entire family. <laughs> uh, hold on, hold on. On babynology, uh, Zep name <laughs> meaning. The name is derived from the Latin words istinus. Or Iustus, which means just, and then it cuts off there. It's an Australian baby names book. The masculine name Zep is used in Australian. Other countries in which Zep being used are nothing. There's just a period. Zep is not very commonly used as a baby name for boy. It is not ranked within the top 1,000 names. Rhymes with Sep or Shep. Thank you, babynology. This is very useful. <laughs> Personality number 22. Person with name Zep tend to be very inspiring, creative, and great visionaries, and possess all the intelligence, sensitivity, and electric creativity that such a power would suggest. They have the high mm. inventiveness and the down-to-earth practicality. Person with Zep having 22 as personality number radiate reliability and consistency. People must them and feel secure with their judgment. They are arrogant and egocentric. What? We went off a bit of a tangent there, baby. Knowledge. What happened? <laughs> I just wanted to know where it came from. Well, they got a lot more Zep going on here, but it's starting to go into astrology stuff, so we're going to believe it. 
Wow, that's an awful tangent. Anyways, say hello to our other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I'm sorry, this entire time all I've been able to imagine is Brock Sampson walking in on us and saying, What's the matter? You don't like Zip? <laughs> We're horsing around. <laughs> Boys are gone. <laughs> Sheriff Bronson Stone. Anyway. How did we never get truck anyway? How did we never get a Venture Bros episode where Brock Sampson has to get himself out of an elaborate jigsaw trap? <laughs> they did a saw parody. They did, yeah. Movie with the monarch. Yeah, but you made that guy eat a butt. Good times. We have fun, don't we? Here doing a commentary for the film Saw from 2004. <laughs> and what version of that movie are we doing tonight, Cody? The unrated cut of the film, which you know this is a professional outfit because I have never seen the unrated cut. I'm going to be commenting on the cut of the movie I have never seen with my own eyes. So folks at home, hopefully you have the unrated version of the movie. Uh, I don't think there's like a 20 minute difference or anything. So you can also pop in the theatrical cut, which is probably what you have on DVD or Blu-ray or 4K uh, and will be minorly out of sync. Or you just listen to us without the movie. I mean, I'm not your daddy. I'm not going to tell you how to live. We could just be, you know, something in the background as you're doing the dishes. Don't say daddy. Too late. Cannot be unsaid. If you'd like Cody to be your daddy, please write care of Box Office Pulp, P.O. Box. Daddy. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we're, they're getting a little too close to my territory. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you knuckleheads. Before we start the movie, we have to introduce the official drink of Saw. Uh, normally at this part of the show, I have a custom cocktail I have meticulously labored over. Um, and that's not the case tonight. Uh, I have set a new challenge for myself. Each drink in the Saw commentary series is going to feature Jepson's Malort. Now, if, if you don't know Jepson's Malort, I didn't hear terrified shocks from Jamie or Mike. Um, so they probably don't know Jepson's Malort. Uh, gasp. Uh, there, yeah, that's close to the actual reaction. Uh, it's a Chicago specialty. Uh, Wikipedia calls it a bitter-flavored type of brownieven, a Swedish liquor distilled from potatoes, grain, or wood cellulose. Malort itself oh, translates... Cody, Cody, you've had enough bad experiences with bitters on this show already. <laughs> Malort itself translates to wormwood, and that's making it sound better than it is. Oh my god, we're going biblical with tonight's drink? Uh, a little. Uh, here are some uh, uh, user reviews that were featured in the Chicago Sun-Times of Malort. Uh, writer Nora Rose Allen called it, uh, It's like if shame and regret were left to ferment before being distilled through an old sweaty shoe. Mike Smolarek, I am so jealous Like that's a review for that and not for this podcast. <laughs> One and the same. Uh, Mike Smolarek says it's sweat squeezed out of hockey pants then aged for five years. <laughs> then poured on hockey pants, squeezed out, and aged another five years in a keg tub left over from a frat party that a cat drowned in. Oh, oh that's so specific and kind of artful. Uh, Chuck Boswell said it's the love child of licorice and rotting cabbage. Just uh, just so you know, I'm not fucking around here. Malort's has taken some considerable amount of pride in how awful they are. Uh, I was literally scrolling through Facebook waiting for this episode to start, and I got an ad for Jepson's Malort. They're now selling posters that... Uh, let me read some of them. One is a framed picture of a bottle of Malort that says, when you need to unfriend someone in person. Uh, the next one is, tonight's the night you fight your dad. 
That's beautiful right there. Um, that's, that's there beautiful. There's an older one I've seen around. Malort, these pants aren't going to shit themselves. <laughs> that I also want to be reviewed for this podcast. Hashtag champagne of pain. Can they sponsor us? I feel like uh, yeah. our brands are very similar. You, you can get them at Riot Fest if you're down in Chicago. Uh, they, they have like a selfie station so you can get the picture of you having your first shot Malort and like your face melting. Uh, it, let's put it this way. On the back of the bottle Malort, here's a little write-up. Jepson's Malort has the aroma and full-bodied flavor of an unusual botanical. Its bitter taste is savored by two-fisted drinkers. And that's them trying to be polite to themselves because this is a product they sell. Anyways, tonight's drink is just Malort. I'm not dressing it up. I'm just going to have a shot of Jepson's Malort. Uh, I've had Malort before. It's god-awful. It is honestly really bad. People are not joking. Uh, it's one of those amazing things where you cannot get the aftertaste out of your mouth. It's like you just guzzle gasoline. So you're trying to prove that you are ungrateful to be alive? This drink will make me ungrateful to be alive. Uh, it's like failing a saw test. Ugh. Okay. Uh, I have poured this into a tiny skull shot glass to remind me of mortality. How appropriate. Uh, cheers. Uh, if you're in the Midwest, I hope you got your own bottle of Malort. I hope you didn't pay more than $20 for it. Uh, and I hope you have friends that you want to poison. Anyways, uh, here's this woman, bow-legged woman. Oh, it never gets any better. Oh my <laughs> god. I've never heard you make that sound before. Oh, it's so God. bad, and it doesn't go away. Ugh. So what was the purpose of this? Because uh, we do a gimmick on this show, and it's to have drinks. That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't explain anything, Cody. <laughs> it's a, The whole joke about Saws is torture porn, and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to get the torture porn of alcohols. Oh my God, it's still there. I can't get rid of that taste. You know, there's we're nine of these things, right? We're going to spend so much time arguing that this isn't torture porn, Cody. <laughs> I, it's, I agree, it's not torture porn. But I, I still thought it'd be very funny to drink some Malort. Uh, it's it, it, like it now lives in the back of my tongue. Uh, nine. There's nine of them. I can't wait until Danny Glover sits you down and asks you if you are, in fact, an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, see, now I'm, I'm, I'm wondering... Do I pitch us watching a walkthrough of the Saw video game? <laughs> because then Cody has to do it again. Uh, and there's two that's, games. No, that's, that's so not the that, same. That's, that's not a commentary. Ex, that's two extra that, times that Cody, you have to, you, 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 you said Mike, you were doing this. You could, you could maybe pitch me, not on that, I refuse, but you could maybe pitch me on when Saw 10 hits theaters Sneaking in a flask of Malort and trying to take a drink every time someone dies. That's that's as far as I would go. Jesus Christ, that stuff's bad. Blech. All right, it's it's still in the back of my throat, but it's manageable now. You know, like fucking Heath Ledger as the Joker, how he just keeps licking his lips. That's like what I'm doing right now. Like I'm trying to just like taste anything that's not Malort. Center yourself, God. Cody. Well, this worked right. out well. Ah. Anyways, welcome to Box Office Pulp. We drink Malort, you little babies. Get on our level. Shit your pants, apparently. Shit your own pants, that's right. <laughs> no, shit somebody else's pants. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just I grab somebody poster. walking down the street and shit in their pants somehow. <sighs> Make them remember. question reality. No, I had a friend no, 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 no. <laughs> I had a friend visit from Chicago. We were at the bar. And he's like, you want to do shots? I'm like, not really. And he just goes... 
did you say Malort? I'm like, no. And he's like, we're getting Malort shots. And we had another friend who had never had Malort shots. And he was like, shots, shots, shots. I'm like, Tino, no, this is, you, you got to get less excited. You're just encouraging him. And so we ended up with shots Malort and Tino never wanted to drink again, which isn't true. We ended Ugh, up drinking the rest of the night. You saved that man's life. No, nah, he still drinks. But there, were, there was a 10 minute period of his life where he's like, I regret all of my decisions. Malort's not fun. Alcohol's bad. Well, then any luck, this commentary can be that for podcasts. It'll, it'll, when your throat stops tasting like gasoline and pencil shavings mixed together, you're going to think, I do want to live, so I never have to experience Malort again, because that's what they're <laughs> going to serve in hell. Well, there you go. Came back around. Yeah, that's me trying to get to the actual film. All right, folks, as I mentioned before, this is the unrated cut of Saw, so hopefully you've got that. Uh, hopefully it's in your DVD player ready to go, because Mike, count us down. One. Two. Three. And I just vomit from the Mort right now. Uh, okay. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and run through these movie facts real fast. There's a lot of name dropping here. Uh, so, Saw was directed by James Wan. James Wan, I would call a horror legend. Uh, he's had Dead Silence, the Insidious films, the, the first couple Conjuring movies, Malignant, uh, and then huge blockbusters in Aquaman and The Furious 7. Uh, our film was written by Leigh Winnell. Winnell would write the first three Saw films. We continue collaborating with Juan on Dead Silence and Insidious. Uh, he's made a name for himself as a director, starting with Insidious Chapter 3, uh, and then also went on to make the criminally underseen Upgrade. Big fan of Upgrade. I think more people should check that one out. Definitely. Uh, Upgrade is amazing. And also, the smash hit, The Invisible Man from 2020. Uh, I think everyone saw that one. It's fantastic. I don't have anything to say about it right now. Uh, our cast includes Leigh Winnell as Adam, Carrie Elways as Dr. Gordon. I know most of you are probably thinking of the Princess Bride, but come on, that guy's Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> and he has an, a fantastic death scene in Shadow of, the, uh, Shadow of the Vampire. We also have Danny Glover as Detective Tap. Uh, you probably think of Glover in association with the Lethal Weapon movies, but he has a little bit of more horror genre cred with Predator 2, which none of us can forget. We've got Michael Emerson as Zepp of Lost and Evil fame. And, uh, oh yeah, just he voiced the Joker in The Dark Knight Returns, which was a pretty nice bit of uh, voice casting. We've got Shawnee Smith as Amanda. Spoilers! Amanda will be back in Saws 2, 3, 4, and a double spoiler, Saw 10. Uh, personally, I loved her in the Blob remake from 86. Then we have, lastly, Tobin Bell as Jigsaw. And more spoilers... That dude is in a lot of Saw movies. Just expect to see a lot more Tobin Bell throughout these whole things. Our music is by Charlie Clouser. Uh, Clouser started as a rock musician and producer. He worked with Nine Inch Nails. Sorry, THE Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> White Zombie, Marilyn Manson, uh, a bunch of other famous acts. Uh, he's he's going to return for the rest of the Saw films. He's also in Dead Silence. Uh, Music-wise, not like acting. Uh, the Stepfather remake. The Collection, which is another movie everyone should check out. Fucking love The Collector in The Collection. Uh, and I just found this out today. He's the guy who made the theme for American Horror Story. Which is Yeah, I did phenomenal. not know that until I was searching for the score for this. It's like, damn, this dude has been all over. I really yeah. love his work. Yeah. Um, our editing here is by Grevin... <laughs> I just mixed his last and first names together. Kevin Grutart. Uh... Kevin would go on to direct several of the Saw movies, including 6, 7, and the upcoming Saw 10. This movie was released 
October 29th. If it's Saw, it must be October. That's how that goes, right? Uh, 2004. The budget was approximately a million bucks, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Worldwide box office, though, came in at just over $100 million, which is a pretty good return investment. All right. I managed to get all that shit in with only, like, three minutes having gone past. Not bad. Hold on. I'm getting faster. I've only gone to, I think, three lines of dialogue so far. So new record. And now I immediately want to back us up. Okay, so at the start of the movie, Adam's in the tub with, like, the little glow lock. Didn't that seem like a cheat to anyone else? Like, it, it, as soon as he opens up his eyes, the tub drains and it goes right down the drain? Like, I feel like the game was very much rigged. You know, I, like, I'm I'm going to try to... I'm going to do... Uh a job of trying to stick to like this is an island film as it was originally like set that was always i do think um as far as like the sequels go a, a good like cover up of a retcon of something like didn't make a whole lot of sense which is amanda just <laughs> tossing it in there instead of like setting it correctly right because as it stands as saw one a solo thing it's very weird for jigsaw to be like the key to that chain is in the tub, which I hope you wouldn't notice because otherwise you would have been free from like the first minute of the film. It's very well, dickish. Yeah, my my interpretation was always like everything had gone pretty much according to plan. The entire point of the, of Adam's particular game was for him to fail and to know that he failed the second he woke up. Like yeah. Considering how completely different this jigsaw operates compared to the jigsaw of the rest of the films, like it, I, I love how this early OG jigsaw is just a cruel bastard who ultimately doesn't really believe in anything. Well, his treatment of Zep too really enforces the fact that this is not anti-hero jigsaw that he maybe become later or be treated as later. This guy's a fucking dick. Like, hey, man. I put a poison in you. Go murder this man's wife and child, uh, or you'll die. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Those people want to live. That's a child. That's <laughs> that kid isn't walking around like, oh, taxes are hard. I want to die. What the fuck, man? I mean, Zep is a whole like interesting rabbit hole to go down. In either way, like whether or not you um, take in the the sequels and the idea of like a protege, and then Zep is kind of like the proto protege of jigsaw but he's also using him so he's more of like an igor type character um but also I like that as a descriptor of him that's basically the stock they're trading in if yeah. he's if jigsaw is dr frankenstein then zep is clearly uh i'm blanking on the name of the helper in the first original frankenstein but yeah uh, fritz. The igor. Fritz. yes he's the fritz and this is very much like Jigsaw's magnum opus is like this particular setup and trap. It's it's why, as much as I love like Saw two and three, um, it, this also kind of works on the uh, Jurassic Park fallacy of you kind of start here and then the entire point is like that's the end point. Like so, you can't actually go forward from that spot, and that's why everything's kind of broken. You can go backwards. But um, that's why I, th I think like the new film, like being a prequel and stuff, makes the most amount of sense for numerous different reasons. But this is also like there's so many different moving parts to this. It really does feel like, and because of Jigsaw's relation to um, uh, Carrie Elway's here and 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 all that, it's it 
it's all very much like this is his final like tableau. It feels like, and then he just kind of keeps going because of the sequels, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's impossible to watch this film now after knowing the twist, and I mean that colors everything, right? The fact that Jigsaw as a character wants to be in this action, even though he's just paralyzed for the whole thing. It's not something we'd really get out of Jigsaw in any other films because they would go in the direction of, oh, he's dying of cancer real bad, so he can't insert himself into the action. But part of the reason this movie is such a success is because everyone was blown away by that twist of him standing up at the end and revealing, nope, I was here the whole time. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of hints to- towards it like throughout the film as well, where you kind of you can look back and go like, oh, Jigsaw does kind of tell you that He's in the room, sort of. And first film Jigsaw is very voyeuristic. And the other films don't really go that way. He watches over stuff, but more of as an overseer because he has to. He wants mm-hmm. to, he is usually physically there for, for the quote-unquote kills he makes in this first film. Yeah. And in this, once again, it feeling like it's the, it's the, like, culmination of his work is jigsaw's entire thing is you not seeing what's directly in front of you and you know that's like his philosophy that and he's angry about that you know he's mm-hmm. he wants to punish these people because they're not dying and don't, aren't seeing what's in front of him and now he realizes what's in front of him but it's too late for him so he's punishing them which is something that the sequels also kind of lose but that's why he's putting himself there. It's, I'm like, what you need, your escape, is literally right here. I'm giving you a loaded gun. Jigsaw, the person holding you here, is in front of you. You can escape this way. Well, it also ties in so nicely to the fact that in our flashbacks, we're going to see Jigsaw is in the hospital, and Dr. Gordon doesn't even notice him or care about him at all. He's invisible to him. So yeah. once again, that repeats itself, where he's in the same room as the guy, and just invisible. Granted, this one has a little bit different connotation, because, you know, it's one corpse in a room where you're stuck and might die yourself, so a dead guy doesn't mean anything. But it plays together very nicely. Yeah, it's one thing I find uh, particularly obnoxious about... Uh, the desire over the years to poke a, mil- a million... Uh, holes into the plot of this movie and point out the 101 things these guys could have done to get loose. Oh, yeah. And things like that. It's like, oh, why didn't they shoot the chains? Or why didn't they use (laughs) his shirt to capture the phone instead of cutting off his foot? There's there's two answers to that. One, the answer that Winnell and Juan give anytime somebody points points out a plot hole, which is yeah, there's a lot of shit in that movie that doesn't make sense. We made, we filmed it in 18 days. <laughs> and two, like, that is kind of the point of the movie. Shit staring you right in the face, and you instead doing the stupid thing. You not seeing the solution, because you're too involved in your own bullshit. Go back to, to one point you just mentioned. On a technical aspect, this fucking blows my mind because they did make this movie in 18 days. Uh, I'm thinking even something like John Carpenter's Halloween, wasn't that like three full weeks of filming? Yeah. Back in, you know, the 70s? 
So it's astounding how fast they ran through this thing. Um, and it, it's funny, too, because once you know how they filled in some of the cracks, <laughs> because very apparently anytime they're using like an insert, it's, it's just like, oh, crud, we didn't actually film enough footage on the day. How do we pad this out and give like connecting material? Uh, put surveillance camera footage in. We'll, we'll like we we have rehearsal footage. We can just gussy that up so no one notices it's like them not actually acting. Now every photograph you see in these interstitials are just the actual production st- stills that they swiped in post production. Yeah, so it's amazing to think how fast they're really moving on this thing. Most of the actors who aren't in this bathroom filled their uh, film their roles in one or two days. Like, I, I think Danny Glover was there for two days. Shawnee Smith was there for, a, like, a half day. And she was also going through, like, uh, the flu at the time. She didn't even want to be there in the first place. And then she was, you know, there with, like, 102-degree fever just struggling through this. So it's astounding they got something that actually works considering the limitations on them. And on top of that, Juan almost didn't make it into the country in time. Like, he had a, a visa hang-up where he was basically yeah. held back until the very last minute and he was led into the country. So the producers had to do pretty much all the casting for him in his stead. He wasn't there to finish production designs or anything like that. He had to trust his crew uh, and his co-writer to, to carry the movie through the finish line, which is astounding. Yeah. So when I watch this movie, even though it's low budget, you kind of look at it and go, yeah, no, this is a competent movie. This is, a, this is, fully put together stylish you wouldn't guess that this was something that was slapped together in like two weeks and honestly if the movie had had time for reshoots had had time to you know fill out that connective tissue in a more traditional manner it would have been at the cost of the movie's signature style which is just something that accidentally came out of the production process yeah so one thing I want to point out here, I imagine one of the hardest deals for directors is to film conversations between two people. Like if you're not in a drama where people are there to watch the actors going against each other verbally, it's very tough to get people to sit down and just accept that a boring conversation is happening. So it's impressive how, you know, they're they're basically just using free cam. Like this is just floating all over the place, but it's constantly moving camera. It's finding different things to zoom in and pull out on which keeps you very engaged beyond the situation or beyond two actors essentially just talking to each other. It gives a lot more energy than is truly there. Yeah, I remember Juan said uh, in pre-production, like he had just kind of assumed they were going to have a ton of space around the bathroom itself and they'd be able to like move walls around on dollies and get all these crazy camera angles to make... (laughs) Uh, the conversation dynamic and then he shows up on set and it's this so <laughs> again the amazing like like really claustrophobic handheld style of this movie is just something they did out of necessity because like we got to do something to make this dynamic yeah, yeah they floated a wall once but other than that because of budgetary constraints they shut the door of the bathroom and they were literally in a claustrophobic space. He had to throw out all of his pretty much shot notes for the entire oh picture. <laughs> you think a person would just have like a mental breakdown right there and be like, no, nah, the picture's not happening. <laughs> this is going to be shit. And it's insane to see like a lot of rework Juan had done 
for a very different version of this film that is closer to something like, um, to me, tone-wise, there's a lot of proto-Wan in this film. But to me, what tone Wan was going for, we don't really see until Malignant. This very, like, heightened reality. Um, Because he was going for much more fantasy elements um, stuff, and that's why it was very much like a Canterbury Tales fable type um, morality play. And of course, Jigsaw's um, robe originally was supposed to be like bright red, but he realized when everything else changed, that was ridiculous, so he turned it inside out the last minute. (laughs) It was a... It's about my original comment. I was I remember watching uh, the Frighteners years ago and listening to the audio commentary. And Peter Jackson was like, "The thing I hate filming the most are just conversation scenes because I always feel like I'm getting bored with them, and I'm the director." So, when if you ever go watch uh, the Frighteners, the moment where like there's a police interrogation of Michael J. Fox's ter- character, the camera is just in those guys' face. Everyone is getting like an extreme close up, just so Peter Jackson can find a way to keep that camera moving and people engaged. Which is, incidentally, what I think they do a really good job of here. Like, that floating camera helps so much to make you feel, like, panicked. Like a panicked animal that's just running around. I just think it's amazing that they're able to transition from the bathroom into uh, the scenes outside. And then, like, the flashbacks while still, like, mostly maintaining that visual style, so it's not terribly jarring. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hey, also it feels like this should not work at all. Yeah, yeah, but all these sets, everything that's not the bathroom, weren't these sets borrowed from other productions? Like, they didn't design any of this. They just kind of went no, into No, no, this was just all one building. Yeah. Um, everything is filmed inside of a single warehouse. Like, this scene um, is the crawl space underneath the basement uh they found that and juan thought it was perfect so they somehow squeezed danny glover down there (laughs) for this scene um like everyone's pretty much crouched and shit but yeah and that's why i that's why it's like a very happy accident that there's this um fidelity of language with the visuals of the film is everything because even the outside the scenes that take place outside are filmed inside this warehouse, so everything feels incredibly claustrophobic, just as claustrophobic as the bathroom, and it, and it makes it feel like you're like the film is uh, running out of oxygen the longer it goes on. A uh, little fun fact here. So this character, Paul Leahy, uh, in the razor wire trap, um, I believe the actor was a, one of the first people they wanted to cast as Jigsaw, uh, Mike Butters. And he essentially passed because he didn't think there was enough for Jigsaw to do in the movie. Which, imagine that weird weird, weird world where this guy was Jigsaw instead. <laughs> God, imagine it's that guy, and he has the bright red wizard robe. <laughs> and also, so I just like to people, say, I, I wanted to get. Oh, go ahead. 
I'm just going to say real quick, this is back when color grading your movie blue and green actually meant something. <laughs> I mean, it definitely gives the movie a very sickly look to it. But I remember even back in the day thinking, like, this movie has too much color grading happening to it. Yeah, this uh, the color grading of, like, this scene and all that is completely different for the uncut um, version compared to the theatrical. Yeah. Uh, so the, the point I wanted to jump on was something we'd mentioned originally is this torture porn. And that phrase got thrown around so much in the early 2000s, it didn't really have a meaning at a certain point. Basically, any film that came out that featured people screaming was torture porn. And I would argue there's a line in the sand between the Saw movies and the Hostel movies. A big line, and that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Essentially, that label gets applied probably correctly to Eli Roth's movies. But Saw, especially the first Saw, there's a couple of moments where people are being tortured. But by and large, it's not the most gory thing in the world. Um, you know, the scene of this, the foot actually getting cut out in the theatrical version is not super, super over the top. I would say probably the most like extreme gore kind of stuff you got was that razor cage, which is mostly presented as like autopsy photos. Yeah, this is no more violent than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, to be honest with you. Right. That's definitely uh, where I think of it. People will have an assumption of violence because, you know, the atmosphere is very intense. The editing makes you think it's it's more violent than it truly is. And I want I once heard somebody no. compare pulp fiction and reservoir dogs as Two movies that both feel very violent, despite the fact that Pulp Fiction is the only one that has violence in it. And that's just <laughs> because Reservoir Dogs is filled to the brim with pain. And I think this movie is very similar. Like, the specter of pain lingers through every scene. And that gives you the impression of, oh, I just watched a really violent movie, even though you saw nothing. You yeah. saw, you heard screams, and yeah. you saw things implied. Well, I mean, that much screaming, too, and like you said, the specter of pain. I think that's why this gets lumped in as the start of torture porn. Because a lot of horror fans, they're used to people screaming and all that, but this probably brought in a larger audience than a lot of, like, the direct-to-video kind of horror films that we trade in. Uh, and horror fan, non-horror fans might not be so used to every scene basically holding someone who is in pain or is anticipating pain. It, it does feel like these characters are tortured in some sense, maybe not literally on the rack tortured, but no one's having a nice easy go of it in this movie. Yeah, but at the same time, it's not that much different than Seven. Yeah. No. In that in that regard, and I, I'm as much as like the closest to it existing is is hostile. The idea of torture porn. My th hang up with that always is torture porn never actually existed. Like that's not. A yeah. thing. It's no different than a lot of other exploitation or, or grindhouse movies, or hell, it's not that much different than the average Friday the 13th movie. Mm -hmm. It just became a thing because torture was part of the plot in some way. Yeah. But it's not that much different than most splatterpunk films. Oh, what? yeah. And Saw, Saw is absolutely splatterpunk. That was something that occurred to me when rewatching this. Like, in many ways, Saw is a throwback movie. Like, visually, it has a very, like, early 90s grunge horror, Nine Inch Nails music video. Yeah, the industrial sound of it as well. The plot is absolutely out of a, a 
a splatterpunk paperback. It's one of the things that's kind of amusing about looking back on the cultural reception to this movie as, you know, one of the horsemen of the new horror apocalypse. Like, hell, this was one big throwback movie to old horror. Just done, just done in a new style. And Juan wanting to pay tribute to Hitchcock. Oh, I could definitely see that, especially with the voyeuristic pieces of it. Yeah, that's taking the peephole in Psycho and just being like, he does this every time. There's literally a peephole in that last scene we were watching, that last flashback. Going back for a second to the whole idea of there being no true torture porn, uh, what frustrates me so much about that is... In the majority of these movies, there's nothing going on here that you wouldn't have found in French New Extremity at around the same time. So I, I think uh, a name for this true. subgenre would probably be better be uh, American Extremity. Yeah, definitely. That would make some sense. Well, and, and the films that come to mind immediately uh, when I think of the torture porn label are one, Hostel, one, and two. Um, but stuff like P2 or no va- or Vacancy. Um, which oddly enough, I just looked those up. Those are both 2007 films. So they came out several years after this movie. So you could say maybe they maybe rode on that wave, but it, it's yeah, funny because you look at those, they definitely belong to different subgenres of horror. Uh, like vacancy is just home invasion. Um, key two is, is kind of similar to home invasion. Only there's no home, you know, someone's stuck in a parking lot instead of a basement. So I, I kind of think of that like, Hey, it, Calling it torture porn is almost like a quick shorthand for describing the mood rather than any set of combined genre expectations. Uh, the movie I would closest, I, the movie I would say closest resembles what most people would consider torture porn is the French version of Martyrs, which is also mm. a masterpiece. So it's kind of self, a self-defeating comparison. <laughs> yeah. There. Well, that goes to like, well, no, somebody, too. I mean, it's all actually, French extremity. Yeah, somebody actually did make a movie where you just see two women tortured for two hours with no plot, and it's the greatest example of that that could possibly be. What makes me wonder, what else... Oh, so, um... High Tension came out in 2003, so I'm betting by the time it made its way to the United States, it was probably right around the same time as Saw. Yep. So home viewers were probably just seeing a wave of <laughs> very extreme stuff that they, they kind of took in to say, oh, horror is this now. Horror is extreme. It's way too and extreme for me. And my attention was, was compared to this. Yeah, um, very much so. And what's funny is if you you look at like high attention, you like look at salt, it, it, it's stuff that was already not, you know, obviously with the creativity or whatever, but stuff that's in the wheelhouse of things that were already being made. Like for any horror fan, we go like, yeah, where have you been for like the last 30, (laughs) 40 years? Like this is shit that's made. It's just now it's actually getting some wide release hits because of the change in technology and things are being able to go on DVD instead of like straight to VHS or, or getting some more like art house cinemas or there's, there's more small distributors like Lionsgate, like Artisan, that was around. Mm, um, yeah. So people are seeing more of stuff that was, you know, that were like traded tapes previously. Those are all really good points, but I have to interrupt you because we're missing what is, in my mind, the highlight of the whole film. The oh, reverse yeah. bear trap sequence. It's the birth of a franchise. 
right there. I mean, when you think of Saw iconography, it's probably Billy the Puppet. It's probably the Bear, tra bear Trap Mask. Those those are the things. Uh, plus the editing, when she first gets out of the chair and is freaking out, the flashes of the MTV style that Saw become known for. It's all right there. This one scene on oh, the ticking counter, the, you know, make your choice or die, but having to hurt someone else. There, There's so many hallmarks of the entire series in this one scene. And it's the thing that, you know, stands out more than anything else, I would say, in the whole franchise. <laughs> Plus that goddamn shot of Shawnee Smith holding up that stupid little knife, her eyes wide, but like half her face covered by that giant, so gnarly, rusty trap. What an image. Oh god, the poster that's just Shawnee Smith in the bear trap is iconic. Looking horrified. Also, we're yeah. about to get a cameo of Lee Waddell's hands. <laughs> the classic yellow experience. Oh, the director should put his hands in there. Oh, oh and what's what's funny is like most of like stuff like this, like the blood, were reshoots at the very last minute after yeah. Juan watched the assembly. Like the mm -hmm. first Eddie went, there's no blood in my horror movie. What the fuck did I do? So <laughs> <laughs> and this lingering shot here of Shawnee just crying after she's got the mask off before the puppet comes in. I would say that's another reason why people would lump this in with something like torture porn. It doesn't just cut away right from the action. Yeah, unless you linger the on the consequence. Yeah, which we come to horror for this kind of stuff, and not the aftermath typically. Like yeah, a lot of kind of horror fans the aftermath the in your part. face. Yeah, um, it reminds me of Rob Zombie and how he would approach violence in, in something like House of a Thousand Corpses. Like it just gets pushed to such an extreme where you're supposed to realize, like, oh, it's not fun. This is this is very disturbing. <laughs> yeah, this is awful. Well, I think. The timing of that is no coincidence. I mean, we were in the middle of a war. This is very post. I mean, it's not an original take that like uh, this <laughs> subgenre popped up immediately after nine eleven, when we became very, very concerned with death and pain and the morality of torture. Very true. I think I actually saw like a book on Amazon relating <laughs> saw to the rise of like post nine eleven culture it was it was like 40 dollars, so i didn't buy it so if anyone out there has read a whole ass thesis <laughs> uh, about george w bush did saw uh please let us know what we're missing it is very intertwined and i think a lot of the misunderstanding and kind of labeling of torture porn to various films comes from not knowing where to Put those feelings towards the real torture we know is uh, that the country is perpetrating. So we're putting it on to media that isn't necessarily portraying that. Well, to go back to the idea I said, where a lot of horror fans think horror is fun, and then when you linger on shots of being tortured or dying, it's like, oh no, now it's not fun. You're ruining it. Uh, I just wanted to see my murder without consequences. I think it goes back a little bit to most of us were raised on movies glorifying world war ii where it was like yeah these are patriots these are heroes you got to kill those germans you got to kill the japs and then if if you spend a little bit more time looking at it it's still war a lot of the stuff they went through is just amazingly horrific just the worst and as soon as you get past the oorah thing of it you realize like oh jesus christ this was 
god awful. But it's not the portrayed like that when you're Dresden. growing up. The firebombing of Dresden was not a good time. Yeah. Or I think a lot of us woke up to that because, you know, we're kids going through all of the war on terror stuff where it stopped being okay, who's the direct villain? There's not another army for us to just line up and go, that's the bad guy, shoot him. It's people in their own houses that are conducting a guerrilla war against you as the invader. And it gets morally very confusing, and it's hard to spin that to kids in a way where they're satisfied that this is the oorah victory story. Oh, I fucking love that shot of the hand waving mm-hmm. surveillance camera. Next time, Gadget. <laughs> just, there's something about the way he moves his hand. I don't know what it is. I don't think I could replicate it it's like a puppet's doing it, not a real human being or something. I just Everything I'll Emerson eat. does is gold. He yeah, moves it like he's the penguin in Batman Returns. Yes! Oh yes. my god, yes! There's just something about that movement. It's it's one of those insert shots I can never forget. Like in The Thing, where they show uh, windows being eaten by The Thing, and you just see like The Thing's feet kind of dancing around on the ground with blood squirting oh, on the floor. Yeah. It's just one of those stupid little insert shots that's two seconds long that I will never forget. Plus, it is a nice transition from the security footage to whatever the fuck Zep is up to to remind you there's an outside threat. Yeah. It's like, something a little bit more very well done. Yeah. And, and, and now that we've been introduced, like, we've talked a little bit about Zep, but another aspect I find fascinating about Zep, um, sort of as, like, this... Especially if you take the sequels in, but I know they kind of inserted a little bit more backstory for Zep and things like that, but looking at this, like, just Zep, more basics as far as, like, this film goes... Um, the idea that like Jigsaw found this person, but seems to have in the within like once again the context of this film, not taking any of the sequels, was able to see like this kind of meek person who seems to be very kind and and take to take to everybody has this in him, and the fact that he kind of knows that like Zep would relish this, and that's kind of what he's punishing him for, like that. But also utilizing Zep as a means to an end. Yeah, it's it still just bothers me because I'm thinking of the character Jigsaw will become, and I can't reconcile it with the character he is in this movie. Because <laughs> it's like such a dick move. Yeah. We want this absolute stranger who is nice to Jigsaw. Like he's he's nice to John Kramer in the hospital, and yet he uses this guy as a tool, poisons him, and makes him attempt murder of the innocent. Like, that's so against the M.O. of Saw and the other films that it's just hard to get out of your head once you've seen anything past one. Well, yeah. God, look at the Amanda scene, where, which is so, like, when you break it down, is so ludicrously cruel. <laughs> and that involves, like, the uh, asking someone to straight up murder an innocent person to save their life. Like, that's, again, you try to square that with later anti-hero Jigsaw's morality, like, no, that's another scene, like, making it very clear. No, Jigsaw is a serial killer. He is here to torture innocent people. Yeah, he, he just happens to it. also have a purpose. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he could have easily killed that guy and just let her rummage through his guts, which is traumatizing enough, but instead, no, he's alive, gotcha! Dick move. Total dick move. Oh, it's once again going back to Jigsaw's motivation in this, with, it's a little bit more simplistic, but with him not being an anti-hero, he's it goes it goes back to the, like, the the line that's repeated throughout every movie and originates here, which is some people are so ungrateful to be alive. And I think a, 
I think a lot of the sequels and when people kind of reappraise Jigsaw as a character and kind of forget that this is different than the sequels, that they forget the ungrateful part. He's he's angry. Like he's oh, yeah. very, very angry that he's dying. He now realizes his life is is ending. And everybody else sees the greatness that he wants in front of, like it's in front of them and that he wants it. So he's not just trying to help them, quote unquote, in his own sick way, but he also is punishing them for the fact that he's dying. Well, in the firsthand experience of it, too, he wants to experience what they're going through, which is why he'll pretend to be a corpse for eight hours. Exactly. <laughs> but these guys are threatening to cut their feet off. There, there's no hint that it's like psychosexual, but it does feel a little bit like he's getting off on the idea of being in the room and being in their shoes with a chance to make it out alive. But also maybe a little bit of self-loathing considering the fact that he's putting them through this much punishment just to, to earn a lesson that he thinks he's already learned. Well, that's one of the things I think is fascinating about the difference between uh, the Amanda sequence and the original short film they use to um, to sell people on the movie, which is the same sequence, but just with Leigh Whannell playing an original character in, in the place of Amanda. Mm-hmm. And that short ends with him getting uh, the same question of if he's grateful for what happened. And in the short film, he just bursts, breaks down crying and <laughs> it cuts to credits. So I no, think no, no, no. Kind of- there was that weird scene of the camera going through the CGI <laughs> master <laughs> and a tile popping out with a human eye behind it and then the title card flashes, which I still laugh about. Still, saw, I say still. Saw I saw for the, the first new album today. from Slipknot. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, think, and I think that kind of sums up like even though that's outside of the movie, that kind of sums up the intent of what Jigsaw is all about and how he's meant to be seen. Like he is not imparting life lessons here; he's punishing ungrateful children, and he's projecting his own self hatred. I think that's something that's lost about the pig mask. Is it's it's he's wearing a rotting i mean it's originally as conceived it was supposed to be like literally a pig's head he's wearing uh just became a mask because they couldn't make one look like they didn't have the money to make one look realistic it'd be Um, too smelly to use the real thing (laughs) but it's something that's rotting because he feels like he's because he is rotting from the inside because of the cancer but also it's his view of himself he's a rotting pig he jigsaw hates himself for the life he's led and now it's ending and he wasted it. So it's, uh, there's a lot of difference, almost, um, almost biblical in a way, um, processes that are going into this version of jigsaw versus like the kind of plain, not plain, but straightforward anti-hero jigsaw that we would see later. I mean, that sounds honestly more interesting than the maybe misunderstood guy who got pushed too far jigsaw we would get later on oh charles bronson jigsaw yeah which i'm sure fans of saw probably are lining up to pitchfork me right now but i do think he's a more interesting character when he's a, a fake corpse on the ground in saw one than he is in <laughs> the other saw films yeah it's kind of fascinating that jigsaw is not like john kramer isn't really a character in this film 
it's like John Doe in seven, you know, it's, he's, there's an idea flowing through the film, an idea of a jigsaw. Well, I think that it's very telling that one thing uh, Winnell and Juan said a lot uh, following the release of this movie was the idea began with two di- two guys in a bathroom, and that's ultimately what the movie always was. It's the story of these guys and following th- them through the situation step by step. Jigsaw and everything surrounding him was always just window dressing. Just something to give the movie a nice hook. Which, again, which makes it so ironic that we got an entire franchise out of this character when Jigsaw might as well be uh, movie one pinhead here. Like, he's he's there to go on the poster. Yeah. Even the poster. Oh, no, Mike's got a salient point. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go oh, hold on. I just want to point out. I was Black just going to talk about marketing. Up. Black Christmas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, speaking of extremities, uh, the Black Christmas remake that that probably falls in that area too, right? Like the perceived torture porn wave. I, I think like that, that was, was right London. Yeah. Yeah. That that was pretty much everyone's uh, everyone's comment on the internet. That was yeah, 2006. So I think it was right during that wave. It's funny because every time I think I want to look it up, it's like somewhere between 2003 and 2007. So was was it over that fast and people just got tired of calling things torture porn, except for on the internet? Well, they never know. I'm too lazy to look up all the films. <laughs> uh, but the point I wanted to mention, because uh, Jamie said the poster, was how effective the Saw marketing was. We got to think, this is a film that was made for Peanuts. It was originally scheduled to go straight to video, and Lionsgate got good enough test scores. We're like, okay, we've got something here. Let's put this in theaters. It's it's kind of a marvel that they were able to turn this around and get the buzz behind it to make it a gigantic smash hit. Maybe a weird comparison, but the only other thing that comes to mind is The Human Centipede. In terms of just a horror movie made by no one coming out of nowhere and everybody suddenly knowing about it and wanting to see it. Well, this walked the line of actually being something people went to see. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's aware of the centipede. I don't think anyone saw it, really, uh, numbers wise. But a big part of it was the posters for these, right? Like those those harsh white backgrounds for a horror film and then kind of the sickly green disembodied parts like fingers or, you know, a foot or a hand or whatever else. And I was kind of surprised that's the way they went, because that seems like a fairly graphic thing to throw out on national posters. Yeah, but all the, all the Saw posters through the entire series were really fucking pushing the limit for, for what they could get away with. The yeah. Saw 2 poster that's just the two fingers is a fucking all-time masterpiece. Yes, I would wholeheartedly agree. And... I remember as a kid, you know, you go to the movies or you go to the Hollywood video or wherever. It was always the horror movies that had those kind of fucked up posters that would grab my attention. And I couldn't rent them, but I would just stare at them like the poster for the dentist, too. Where it's just the person kind of like smiling and their gums, their teeth have been replaced and their gums just oh, have razor blades. Yeah. Like, oh, How man, that I was loud. Right. Like, there's no way. Come on. And, of course, my, my video store always put that as, like, an end cap because I knew people were going to see that and be like, oh, that's attention-getting. I got to see whatever this is. 
And I, I think of Saw in that same way, where it's just one of those amazing, iconic poster deals that'll just grab your attention, even when it's not the disembodied parts. Uh, if it's like Amanda in the the bear trap, like that'll get your attention because it, it threatens so much violence. It's it's so much better than some of the generic waves of posters we've gotten, where it's just the lead actor's face and a bunch of text over top of it. You know that social network trend. Plus, this kind of had the social energy behind it before there was viral marketing. I remember seeing CNN stories about this movie where they were kind of saying, like, this weird little Australian flick made for no money about two men in a bathroom threatening to cut their feet off is making huge money at the box office. You know, like they couldn't understand why this was connecting with people, but they fed into the controversy and got more people to see it by reporting on it. Well, it's also just kind of CNN's line. It's also just a log line that even non-film fans would just go gaga over. Like two guys wake up in a in a bathroom chained up with with saws that they can use to saw their feet off. Also, there's a dead guy in the middle of the floor, and there's tapes telling them what what to do to survive. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. A good I mean, mystery that, that could have been an art film. Plus, I mean, people that are showing up that aren't necessarily horror fans, one, they're going to be, I wouldn't say disgusted, but necessarily, they're probably going to be hooked on like, wow, this is an extreme way to present violence, but not so extreme they can't handle it. Uh, It ends with such a big twist that, fuck, that's all you're going to want to talk about. You're going to forget any sort of weird flaws in plotting if that twist grabs you right. It's the sixth sense all over again. I wish I saw this film in the theater because being in a theater when Jigsaw stands up, oh, uh, that that's a fun fact. So the <laughs> ending of Saul was spoiled for me long, long, long before I got to actually watch it. Shortly after it was released in theaters by You're the Man Now Dog website. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. A classic, but I'm not familiar with the video they did on Saw. Yeah, they had it. They, there was somebody put up a website that was I forget what the name of it was, but it was a fake name. So mm-hmm. you click on expecting one thing, and it's a picture of Jigsaw in the middle of the floor with saying like the ki- the killer is the dead guy. <laughs> so low effort. Some some old school trolling. I remember you're the man now, dog, for a series of videos making fun of Darth Vader in Revenge of the Sith. Like the one where he's on a roller coaster, just no, oh, yeah. going over the turns. <laughs> uh, my personal favorite: someone took a clip from the original Judge Dredd film with Sylvester Stallone, uh, and there's a part where he's fighting his evil clone, and it's just them singing "Breaking the Law" back to each other. Classic. I used to just listen law. to that. Breaking that was actually law, a good song. Breaking the law. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, classic stuff. I'm dating myself here by waxing poetic over You're the Man Now, dog. But Dear young people, there was a website once called uh, <laughs> You're the Man Now, dog, because of that trailer to that one Sean Connery movie. You're the Man Now, dog. And you could make your own, like, single-page website on it that was like a still image or, or a GIF and uh, music or a sound playing in small clips. It was is we proto memes the web page. Yeah, we we feel about this the way you feel about Vine. I like Vine too. I miss it. Stygian streets. <laughs> I love that so much. 
Again, more production photos for establishing shots they didn't grab. That was the thing, right? That was that's a real street Stygian. It's not like they're like, oh, we have something here from like mythology we should put in. No, it's just like, fuck, go out and take some pictures of street signs. We gotta fill in the time. <laughs> that looks cool. We gotta throw that in there. Yeah. Just, uh, it still completely knocks me over. They had no idea what they were making, right? They had 18 days to make it, so even if they did, they couldn't slow down and do like behind the scenes featurettes or any of that kind of shit. They didn't even have time to make cast and crew shirts or the money to do that. And yet the movie made $100 million, spawned a franchise that I don't know what all the other Saw movies have made combined, but this has to be like a billion dollar franchise. Also, look at that <laughs> that goddamn Ooh. fog. <laughs> oh, so I, we, we just passed it. But in the um, full screen version, I mean, you can still see him in, in this version, too. But in the full screen, um Lee Winnell uh, plays a Asian detective briefly. Yeah, there's a couple of shots where he's in there and they just try and focus on his hands because they're trying to do reshoots and they didn't have the actors anymore. They were essentially stealing a set from a friend who gave him permission to film there overnight for like 50 bucks. <laughs> so Winnell would just kind of stand in for other people. I think he might have stood in for tapping part of it too. Like anytime they just need an extra body. So they just pan the camera down so you couldn't see a face or anything. So I love this OG workshop. As fun as like the workshops and the sequels are, I, I will always like mannequin factory workshop. It's just kind of like really dirty and sparse. To be picky about them, it feels like the other Saw movies lean more into slaughterhouse aesthetic, which I, I think became part of the canon at some point. It was all set in like a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Life. Whereas in this one... It's not really that. I mean, it's all very grimy and rusty and all that. But you're right. It's more of a weird mannequin kind of tailor situation. Different spooky vibes, I would say. I love that Jigsaw made a diorama. (laughs) If I were Jigsaw, this would all be Lego bricks. Which is once again proving like that's like his magnum opus. Like that's his long form project. Billy! Billy! So in this film, Billy was just a paper mache puppet. This was the same one they had made for the actual short film. It's funny, on the producer's commentary, they're joking that Winnell was pissed off, uh, or Juan was pissed off, because in 2, they actually made, like, an animatronic dummy that can move with remote control. He's like, how come I didn't get that? My God, to get the bear trap to snap open, they had to blow it with a fan. So, yeah, that's that's the level of, of budget they were working with with this. I, I was going to wonder, because in the scene where the bear trap goes off, like it's on the ground and it looks like there's a little bit of a jump cut before it goes off. <laughs> so I was assuming there was like a little bit of trickery to get the machinery to work on time after it gets thrown on the ground. Or they uh, maybe like because... swapped it out for one that actually worked. Well, that's because they had to snap it open before they threw it, because when they threw it, it broke. Oh, no. <laughs> but they knew it was going to break, so yeah. they filmed the snapping first. <laughs> One specifically pointed out, as like, those are the kind of fires you gotta point out, pull, you've gotta pull out whenever you're a director. <laughs> Just when exactly can we break the prop? Yeah. <laughs> the funniest part about that though is I will always remember that scene looks unnatural but I never freeze frame to be like what exactly did they do here why does it look f- weird I was going to say fake but that's not what really it is and it's probably more memorable because it looks a little janky to be honest 
Oh, even the styrofoam head is exploded by, uh, by I think, like a BB gun or something. Yeah, that was, like was going to be my thing. guess looking at it, yeah. I think back but, in like the 70s and 80s, that was just the way you did explosions. You just fire like some BBs at whatever else. <laughs> when it exploded, you can be like, cool, look at it, go. It, it just, it's just funny to think, as intimidating as that prop is, it seriously is just a hat that opens up. Yeah. Speaking of uh, BBs and uh, movie making, James Cameron apparently almost got some people killed uh, on the first Terminator. When they were doing the scene where the Terminator shoots at the police station. Oh, yeah. Terminator shoots through the police station, and they did that by having a guy off screen shoot a pellet gun, like shooting real-ass BBs through glass. Um, And Cameron made the mistake of not realizing the trajectory is actually lined up with extras. So one of the stunt guys caught him and was like, hey, man, you, you can't point it that way. You're going to, like, shoot the people down there. So luckily they caught it before anyone got messed up. But just imagine, those pellet guns are not soft. This isn't like a normal BB gun. These are shooting, like, real-ass metal pellets. Yeah. Pellets got to do some damage for the for the shot. Yeah, you got to break, like, real glass. So, oh, man, Hollywood filmmaking. <laughs> Also, I Thank love you. action jigsaw here with his Cronin blades. I, that's all I, I can think of is just Hellboy. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I'm I'm confused now. Is this is this jigsaw or was that Zep? Jigsaw. I feel yeah, jigsaw. That's jigsaw. Okay. Yeah, well, that was definitely Tobin Bell's voice. Which I was gonna say, I love the genius of casting Michael Emerson, who could convincingly do a Tobin Bell sound-alike voice if need be. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't entirely rule out that that's Emerson whenever you hear Tobin Bell talking as a jigsaw. Well, Emerson is so perfect, too, because he gives off... He's, you know, his characters are normally very threatening. He's great at playing that, but he's also great at the same time playing pathetic. Like, he's a weird, kind of like worm-tongue blend of just, just being like one of those guys who just slime that doesn't seem threatening, but he also holds all the cards so he is threatening, and because you judge him that way, now he's more dangerous because he hates you. Yeah. It, it's, it's... Like, Jigsaw's kind of point with Zep is, like, it's the falsehood of power. Well, and, okay. and the ability just to oblige because there are rules. You know, at the end when he's saying, hey, sorry, uh, yeah, you killed the guy, but you did it too slow by a minute. You have to die. And they ask why when he just says, it's the rules. It's the you rules. Know. Yeah, I'm not going to argue it. I'm just going to say, that's that's the rules. There you go. We're probably in the bloodiest part of the film right now. We just saw a head explode off screen with the dribble on screen. So fucking cool. The guns pointed straight down. I love that trap so much. Hey, Lewinel. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, anytime you don't see like a head, just assume it's Winnell like in disguise. Also, I love how Jigsaw, specifically in this movie, looks like a boxer. <laughs> well, there, there's apparently some costuming issues they had, the producers had to sort out. Uh, in one scene, Zep is supposed to jump out of the closet, right? And he's originally was just going to be wearing like a blanket, like not even a full-size blanket, but like a little one with stars and whatnot on it that was going to go down to like his shoulders. And the producers stopped and were like, this is the dumbest looking thing. Get him like a like a full-ass cloak. Like a full head-to-toe cloak. We gotta make him look cool. Yeah. I love that shot, too. I mean, it, it, every, everybody loves that shot where the camera pans and he's, like, in the 
ghost sheets. And then he moves down and grabs the grabs a little girl. But I love it because when you look at it, oh, it's like a really primordial shot you'd see in like a Conjuring movie. Yeah. I always like, think of uh, The Exorcist 3 when they came up with the shears. Maybe just the long flowing kind of cloak, but those two shots kind of get linked in my mind. Hey, more filler security cam footage. So yeah, the tagline here would be two guys, one saw, one bathroom. But I was amazed watching, watching this movie for the first time to realize how much other shit was all over this deal. We've got all the stuff with Detective Tap, the obsessed police officer and his dead partner. We have the outside story of Jigsaw. We have Zap kidnapping Gordon's family. Like, you think it's just going to be two characters having a tense conversation for an hour and a half. And they really put enough stuff in here where you don't think about this as much. And I think that helps with the twist. You're so focused on the ten other things that are happening outside of the room. You're not pausing to think, isn't it really weird that the killer who made this elaborate trap just has this unexplained dead guy in the middle of the room? Yeah, no one's bothering to, like, what's the point of the dead guy? Who's the dead guy? And even the the act of observing, you kind of forget about because it gets put onto Zep. You see Zep actually watching them. There's there's all these little clues of like, there's a camera inside of here, so they know they're being watched. You don't think, oh yeah, there's another guy who's really into watching. He's actually in the room, and the rest is just like security footage. So I think there are a lot of really clever, subtle red herrings here. And that's why most other films that try and do big twists don't work, because they forecast it so much. This one is playing very cool with something out in the middle of no, in the open. Yeah, even the X marks the spot thing, which you know points to this box, but also Jigsaw's in the shape of an X in the middle of the floor. If they just noticed that first, <laughs> <laughs> no. I do like, too, the mystery aspect. These characters are putting things together a little faster than the audience most times. Like, Goran's the first one to call out, hey, there's a clock in here, and it's brand new. They want us to know the time. A lot of audience members, I don't think, would necessarily pick up on that fact. They just think, a clock, whatever. I mean, for film purposes, you're always like, oh, if there's a clock, they want you to pay attention that this is like a ticking time bomb situation. Uh, But if you're not analyzing movies that closely, you maybe wouldn't consider that it's important. So I think it's smart little details like that in screenwriting that make this thing run so well. I love how much these scenes play out like you're playing up an old point-and-click adventure game. <laughs> Clock tower! <laughs> Jigsaw just has bare snapping hands and said, Oh god, well the end of this movie is essentially Adam soft-locking himself out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too bad, Leywanel. You saved with radiation poisoning. I'm gonna send somebody this note one day. I still think this is such a silly idea. Like, <laughs> I'm going to convince them I'm dead and that my blood was really poisonous. So later on, when they open the box, they'll think I can soak these cigarettes in the poison blood and then give it to the other guy who will smoke them and die. Obviously, it was never going to happen because his blood wasn't poisoned. But as a doctor, you think it'd be smart enough to be like, I don't think that's how poisons work. I don't I think hope none the of blood's that was... not poison. 
<laughs> I hope that none of that was intentional on Jigsaw's part, and <laughs> they right, just pulled totally that out of their asses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, what totally is he doing? different idea for the cigarettes. He's over like trying to be quiet. Play cool, play cool. Don't uh, what the fuck is he doing? Just imagine people in escape rooms and how bad they are and how often they need clues. It's amazing this went off as well as Jigsaw planted. Got working support in an escape room must be an absolute living hell. Hell or very entertaining to see dummies in there just like No, please stop trying to take the electrical outlets out of the room. I would just this laugh is- at them all day. It would be very enjoyable. Also, I just want to point out, they point this out in the commentary, but yeah, Adam being the only um, photographer who sneaks around using flash photography to <laughs> covert take images of, of somebody. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to mention the fact that that's the producer's car. Uh, and they're actually like on a studio parking ramp. They're not even like in a real lot. And they just got all the cast and crew to, like, bring their cars in and park it inside of this fake garage. Yeah, once again, same building. Yep. Also, I fucking love this shot coming up. Just, why crawling? Why being weird? <laughs> There's something to be the said about The only shot the- that where he, um, I think they had already filmed this before, uh, Juan changed his mind on the robe, so it's the only time it's, it's all red. Ah. He has the little red riding hood robe on. There, there's something to be said, though, about every set in the world of Saw, even in normal locations that are just like a parking garage, look like the most sparse, dark, and haunted areas of the world. And I, I love how that's all just down to, we didn't have budget to make like an actual normal parking garage, so we had to essentially guerrilla warfare one of these in the studio back lot. There's something uh, I, I feel like through pure just luck and happenstance, all of the films inadvertently created a heightened reality world where it's almost not apocalyptic or anything, but everything is just so grungy and dirty and everybody is just Miserable. morally gray in some way or or having a bad time of it. There's, I don't think there's anyone who's happy in any of the Saw movies. You never see, like, someone who's like, I can't wait to go see my family who I genuinely love, and then they go out and, and like, go pick pumpkins or something. Everyone's is, always just miserable. <laughs> yeah, and this is the only film, I think, well, maybe, well kind of two and three. Um, yeah, two and three to an extent. But then they really go off the reservation as far as, like, the victims go, go where most of them are just, like, deplorable. Or in, or in this, like, um, Dr. Gordon isn't really a bad guy, like, and he's even aware that he's doing bad things and doesn't really want to, <laughs> but he seems to not be able to, like, help himself. Like, no one, like, Adam and, and, and Gordon aren't really bad people, and that's kind of the point, is, like, Jigsaw is a bad person, even though he's kind of trying to impart some sort of moral lesson. And the people who are doing bad things aren't necessarily bad at heart. Yeah, kind of shitty. And we'll get into it in future movies, but some of the characters that get roped into these whole things, they just have one, I guess, fatal flaw. Like, he loves his job too much! (laughs) And therefore he has to go through a horrible gauntlet that he dies in. Uh... It's very weird some of the reasons people get 
kicked. And it's just kind of a condemnation of everyone. Like there's no one who's actually pure of heart in these films. And I want to say no one ever actually makes the right choice. Or if they do, they make it too late or someone else kills them by mistake because they're also going through their own trial. Oh God, if you want to consider the first Saw game, which uh, Juan and Winnell did do a little bit of consulting on, which was for a time meant to be a canon continuation of the story. Like a jigsaw target's tap for the crime of trying to capture him too hard. <laughs> I mean, they do present in the movie as he's obsessive to the point where it, it ruined his life. Yeah. His whole life is just the chase. On the other hand, we don't know what his life was like before, really, and his partner just died and he feels guilty about it. Uh, so it does seem a little off that his punishment is like, you have to die for caring too much about those around you and not about yourself. It's, it's one thing I've always had a hard time squaring in the Saw films, especially because I've known people that would swear up and down. Jigsaw's not a killer. He's presenting people with a choice and they need to, you know, get their acts together. And I'm like, I, I don't know about that. Jigsaw's <laughs> a think, spiritual guru. I, yeah, I think this is a guy who is very, very flawed and hides behind his decision and just happens to be lucky enough to be surrounded by the worst people in the world. Also, I would say the first time I saw Saw, uh, I'm not going to make any Ariel Way fans here. I couldn't really appreciate the first one because I, I saw it after two because I thought Harry always acting was really awful. Like I could not stand him mostly because I came in the movie for the first time later into the film where he's going to like shock. <laughs> and I just assumed that that's how he acted the whole movie. <laughs> you know, and it's, he's trying to give like a realistic portrayal of shock. Like I've lost a lot of blood. So you do the shivering thing. You're wise a sheet. And instead it just looked like, a guy who took a paycheck is just, oh, I'm sick. I'm dying, Adam. Uh, so in one of the commentaries, he does say, like, yeah, I was being pretty hammy. It's very hammy at the end. But uh, I think the important thing here is a lot of times we review films out of context. Like, you see a clip for a movie and you just go, oh, that sucks. Uh, and then when you see it in context, you realize, oh, no, this works so much better when you see the rest of the characters' choices. So it's... I got an early dose of that as a kid, I guess. Like, you have to review the thing as a whole rather than just cherry-picking parts. Oh, yeah. Please learn that, Internet. Also, uh, no, Lee Winnell's forever fucking disdain for people seemingly not understanding that Adam is supposed to be doing a bad job at pretending yeah. to die. And that's not right. the actor Lee Winnell putting on a performance. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was pretty straightforward. Although I always thought it was very silly that somehow the chains also had electric wires in them. <laughs> like, you think well, they would have noticed that at some point when they were going through with the saws? Well, well the, uh, well, the, the uh, wire would just be, like, attached to the chain somewhere else. And it would just flow up the chain. That's, that's the part too far for me. I can forgive the guy pretending to be dead for, like, six hours on the floor, not moving. No, it's, if, it's, if you if you really want to uh, to blow your head out, um, how is Jigsaw pressing the button? That's that's a good question. Yeah, I always assumed it was Zep. Is he using yeah, his Zep, dick? Yeah, Zep's in the middle of like action right now, so he can't really like actually be monitoring the room and zapping people. It is clear he has a button in his hand. It's like, is it just pr 
Is he like yeah. Spider-Man pressing it there with like his, his middle finger? They're too busy. Yeah. He's like actually in the corner, like sipping a margarita and they just don't notice that he's having He's got up time. and used the toilet three different times. <laughs> Every to, time uh, he gets up, dun, 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 Piss over. He slams the bowl lid down. Uh, to, to Topin Bell's credit though, while they were filming that bathroom scene, I think it was like the first six days they filmed it in order to make sure they had like the continuity as close to possible because it was going to be a bitch otherwise. He basically got down on the floor, even when they weren't filming him, just to like get in kind of character. He got made up, he got put on the floor, and laid there all goddamn day without any lines. Which is amazing dedication to your craft, but also very silly in my mind. Well, they also only, I mean, I think it was also a matter of... They only ever used a dummy once, and it was just a it, it was just a matter of them needing someone to actually be there, and they were so cheap, like literally had to get the actor to do it. <laughs> I mean, you could probably get anyone because it's very very few shots actually linger on the corpse in the middle of the room because that would give the way give away the game. So I, I'm just impressed because Toby Bell was not a young man when he took this role, and it's cool that he actually <laughs> he did it because he believed in it so much. This is this is one of those nice things where Tobin Bell was in a shit ton of movies before Saw, but very rarely were they major roles. Yeah. And it's it's very nice that he got a signature role when he was what, like sixty something? Is that when Saw came out? When he was about sixty? Pretty close. It's very Boris Karloff in that way. Yeah. And the fact that he was on board, like he read the script and he's like, Yeah, okay, I get what they're going for here and I'm really interested in the writing. Yeah, it he wasn't like loves the artistry of, of these movies. Yeah, he wasn't here for the paycheck. Like, this is legitimately a guy who's like, no, this is cool. This is my jam. Uh, and it's great to see him kind of rewarded for that. Even in the Saw films where he's dead, people are still like, where's Jigsaw? He's all we want out of the films, which is very yeah, strange. That's, that's why it's so good now. He gets to be able to, like, go back and, like, oh, I get to be, like, play Jigsaw alive again doing, sh- doing shit. Now that everyone's been able to, like, reappraise, like, everyone all already liked him, but now it's 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 more, like, a legend coming back sort of thing. Well, he's modern day horror iconography royalty. You know, it's, it's the Freddy Krueger of the two thousands, which we don't have a lot of, we didn't make as many giant sequel blockbuster kind of things like we did in the eighties. So for the horror Mount Rushmore, you got obviously the classic slashers, your Freddy's, your Jason's, the nineties really only gave us like Ghostface and Candyman. And let's be honest, Candyman had two good movies. Uh, it's it's impressive Candyman gets on the Mount Rushmore for essentially just Candyman. Pretty much. Uh, and then other minor stuff like, well, we had a fucking lot of Leprechaun movies, so I guess Warwick Davis is on there. Well, that's how Truly the puppet master gets, gets grandfathered in just through volume. Exactly. Right, yeah. I just wanted to applaud James Wan for a second. Um, ever since I first watched this, the fact that he refused to do movie lights out. <laughs> just like, no, it's just going to be literally dark. You can't see shit. They mentioned that on the commentary too. The producer's like, James Wan is very serious about his darkness. When it's black, it's got to be like pitch black. You can't see anything. So it makes scenes in The Conjuring and Insidious like so fucking startling. Oh, yeah. I will go to bat as uh, I know a lot of people aren't into The Conjuring because they don't like the real life Warrens, which is very understandable. Oh, they're horrible. Yeah. Uh, or other people would say, hey, the conjuring is is kind of just like 
it's pushing the value of the Warrens, like the the fake Warrens, as being very very. Normal, oh, it's propaganda. Christian, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's propaganda. a Christian superhero movie. To quote, all, to quote Henry Zabrowski. Yeah, all of that out of the way. Fucking, I think that is one of the most technically well designed horror films ever made. I, I think. Oh, the definitely. Jump scares the Conjuring is a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I. Th- I, um, I am not a fan of Conjuring two. Conjuring like one two quite a is a masterpiece, and I love three. Uh, two, two. My problem is a. It feels like Christian propaganda at a certain point, yeah. and two. I love the story of the Einfeld polter, poltergeist so much that, and I know so much about it that the version presented in the Conjuring two is less interesting. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's very much a disaster artist situation there. Hmm. See, my my thing was one. James Wan does jump scares better than anyone in the business. The guy By understands far. how they work. When people complain about jump scares, they're complaining about stupid, shitty jump scares, like the typical someone threw a cat at the camera jump scare. Yeah, no falsies. Or, J- James Wan doesn't do falsies. Yeah, or you have a jump scare where it's so telegraphed you're not surprised when it happens, where it's just the volume's cranked really loud, so it's a natural reaction you kind of jerk. James Wan fucking gets you. Like he he knows what's going to make it work. Uh, my hat off completely for the work he can do at making people jump at scares. He's also the king of the misdirect jump sta- jump scare, where you think it's coming from over here in the frame, and it's coming from over here. Yeah. So good um, at that. So my thing was, I, I caught the first two Conjuring films in sold-out theaters, like opening weekends, uh, and it was the best experience I've ever had at a theater. Everyone in that crowd was amped for a horror film. They weren't fucking around with their phones. This was like classic hey, let's all buy a giant bag of popcorn, and then every time a demon appears, we're going to throw that shit to the ceiling because we're terrified. It was so good. Uh, and The Conjuring 2, the reaction was even stronger because there was like a whole row of 14-year-olds who didn't know anything about horror films. And they had the time of their goddamn lives at that movie. Like, they absolutely lost their shit at everything happening in The Conjuring 2. So the movie itself on rewatch isn't as good, I will admit. But the theatrical experience was so fun, I can't let go of the memories of people just losing their shit and screaming and throwing stuff. So I, I always have a hard time talking smack about two because it was engineered so perfectly for the big screen experience. Which is probably why I don't like three as much because I didn't catch three in theaters. I caught that one whenever it came out on DVD. And so it's fine to me, but it doesn't have that kind of emotional attachment where you can see other people actually fucking freaking out while all the stuff's going on. I would just like to state for the record, though, that the uh, the Nun is the best Conjuring Ooh. universe film. Big swing there, Mike. Bite you're me. gonna have to you're gonna have to back that one up. Give Corn Hardy more the things. Nun. The Nun is very good. I appreciate the set design of the nun. I'll give you that much. You got all the hammer, spooky crosses, and churchy stuff going on. That's great. I can go back in time and greenlight Corrin Hardy's Crow reboot. (laughs) There's still time. We still don't have the Crow reboot. They can get that guy. What is Corrin Hardy doing next? Uh... Dude's in a gunship song. How awesome that is. Talking about Cthulhu. I'm actually having to look this oh, up because I have no idea what that guy's on to right now. Unrelated, but is it weird anybody else out how much young Le Winnell looks like Ezra Miller? 
Yeah, I've I've thought that for a while. First time hearing those words together. What's weird is Liwa now looks exactly the fucking same. Dude is ageless. The outback. His hair is his hair is slightly less anime now. Oh, okay. So, he looks like uh, L. So he looks like in this. Horn Hardy, uh, he's very limited, right? He did The Hollow, which is the first thing I saw that I thought was fucking amazing. I thought The Nun was so-so. Uh, but he spent, like, the last three years working on Gangs of London as the director and executive producer. Oh. He's also apparently in eight episodes as a fake shump. <laughs> but good for that guy. Yeah, I was wondering what happened to him, but apparently he's just having a good time making TV. As long as he's making oodles of money, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm still bummed he's not doing the nun too, but I'm still looking forward to it. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, you think with the amount of money the nun pulled in, it would have been like, eh, screw it, let's just keep the same guy. I wonder if that was just a scheduling thing where he's like off doing his TV career. Yeah. Mm. Neither here nor there. It's saw time. Yes. If it's this commentary, it must be saw. I want to know this intern's aim here. Just immediately starts taking your clothes off. <laughs> Look, Dr. Gordon is the bus fucking town. That's that's the thing we're made to assume. As you wish. <laughs> it's strange to me these days to see Carrie always cast as like the legacy horror guy in stuff like Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Like having Robert England and Carrie Elwes basically treated with the same gravity of like, holy cow, we got these guys as minor characters is very weird to me. No offense to Carrie Elwes, I just I just still think of him as like, you know, that's Robin Hood, that's that's Wesley. It's like what, 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 what? Why are we treating him as the Jaws mayor here? It is very strange. It's it's strange that Elwes seems to really like being the horror guy. <laughs> I we should get him in more stuff. To be honest. I wish they so, would. I, I wish she. I mean, I would love to see more Elways in, in like horror stuff, but I miss comedy Elways. Oh, yeah. Elways is fucking killer at comedy. He was oh, yeah. delightful on psych. Him doing large sections of the Saw commentary as Marlon Brando is still <laughs> superb. <laughs> I'm saying is make an animated Princess Bride sequel. I remember a story Neil Gaiman was talking about once where uh, he was doing a pitch meeting for, I think, Stardust. Um, and the studio was having a hard time at the roundtable figuring out what this project should be like, like what it should be compared to. And so Neil Gaiman's like, oh, well, you know, it's like the Princess Bride. And one of the executives said, don't ever say that. Do you know how much money we lost theatrically on that movie? Like, Neil Gaiman basically got told to sit down and shut the fuck up because The Princess Bride was not a moneymaker, which is so strange to think about as, as, you know, it's 2023 and The Princess Bride is now a beloved classic that has to have made who knows how many tens of millions of dollars just on DVD rentals alone. It was a beloved classic when Stardust was made. Right. So the fact that studios are still like, fucking the goddamn Princess Bride. Ugh. Someone lost a job over that. You just know when that movie came out. 
Uh, it's been on my mind a lot with the uh, first trailer to the animated Scott Pilgrim series uh, coming out earlier this week. Like, man, that movie mega bombed and nearly disrupted oh. Edgar Wright's career. Yeah. That's weird to think. Yeah. What a bummer, too. I, I think that kind of falls into the same category as like Speed Racer, where it's too stylized for most audience members to get along with right now. Like that era, most of the big stuff that was hitting was more the Dark Knight, where you wanted kind of a, a groundedness to it, some sort of grittiness. And so to yeah. have live action cartoons just wasn't what the Zeitgeist was asking for. Which sucks because, goddamn, Scott Pilgrim, what a fun movie. And I'm so happy we have it. I was like, can we take a moment to appreciate Glover's crazy dude performance in this film? Where he is, he just looks like he's having <laughs> so much fun. Oh, yeah. People kind of forget Danny Glover, A, is in this movie. B, is like just do, doing a completely different kind of Danny Glover performance. Yeah. He, he, he's in this, but he's no, he's actually playing a part. Like, they don't cast him because he's Danny Glover. I think they mentioned on the commentary too. This is like pretty much the only film Danny Glover has ever died in. So it's something fun for him. He gets one. To defeat the Predator, but not Jigsaw. <laughs> and I really enjoy um, kind of the switcheroo they play with. Gordon starting the film out is very calm and collected and trying to like make decisions and Adam being freaking, freaking out the entire time. And now they're, they're actually switching roles and Gordon's just completely losing his mind and becoming useless. Yeah. Do you guys remember when the IMDB forums were a thing? Uh, I would, I would obsessively track them whenever a new Saw movie was coming up because I didn't see any of the Saw movies in theaters until Jigsaw, but I really wanted to know what was happening in them. So I would follow all the fan theories and I just remember for years, people would obsess over every film to try and figure out what happened to Gordon. Yes. I was on the Saw forums when they were first made um, shortly after the release of the first film and that was for years years until I stopped using them, like around Saw 4, that was like everyone trying to figure out exactly what happened to Gordon. <laughs> Which I remember some people actually pretty much nailed what they ended up doing in Saw 7. Like they knew it ahead of time, but that almost feels like a guess. Well, um, I mean, other... that, that only happened because it was already a fan theory. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. But I always thought of it as this version of Jigsaw would 100% let Gordon bleed out and die in the hallway without helping him. Like, ah, well, you cut your foot off. Too bad it didn't work. Every yeah. other version of Jigsaw from like two onwards would not let him go through the act of cutting his foot off and proving his will to live just to die in the hallway from blood loss. So it became one of those things where the more movies came out, the more I thought like, oh, it's just a matter of time until they resolve the contract situation and they pay Elways what he was due. And he comes back as, like, a main character. It just thematically didn't make sense. I mean, sometimes movies do stuff that's like, oh, that's dumb on paper. Uh, but while it was just headcanon territory, 
it would be insane to me to just be like, oh, we just left him in the hallway to die. But it was still fascinating just to read hundreds of nerds online arguing about this thing and being like, well, I freeze-framed this piece of paper, <laughs> and I could have sworn I saw his name scribbled in the corner. Oh, anytime and- you um, see Jigsaw limping. Oh, is that Gordon? Yeah. Including just- earlier in the film, which takes uh, – in a scene that takes place early. I remember that being a thing people would discuss. Like, well, that takes place before he cut off his foot. So that doesn't make any sense. And uh, I, I said nerds earlier. I shouldn't be too disparaging because remember, I was reading all those forums without actually participating. So I was on the same And we're doing a movie podcast. We're doing yeah. an audio commentary for – so I'm sorry, Emerson's fucking performance with these lines. <laughs> he fails. Just <laughs> right the way he does all of his line readings, the pauses, the way he drags things out. Uh, it's surprisingly high pitch for the scary guy, which I think goes back to that point I was making before about him seeming a little too pathetic for the guy with all the power. It's it's so good. I love when that guy pops up in things. Emerson makes such interesting choices as an actor. Like, there's a reason he was a bit player on Lost who got blown up into the gigantic arc villain of the entire series. (laughs) Like, the second you have Michael Emerson in your project, you have to milk everything from him. (laughs) Just an endless font. I'm still stunned, though, that he doesn't have more big movie credits. You you would assume people would see all the stuff he's doing and go, fuck, let's get that guy off of television and, like, make him a, his own villain. Yeah. At least he was on person of interest for, like, 100 years. Yeah. Well, now he has Evil, which is still going. That's, like, three seasons in. I think I so, yeah. I haven't, I haven't sat down to watch that show, but I've heard a lot of good things. It seems cool. It has Mike Coulter. It's good enough for me. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the area I first came into saw for the very first time, and I'm like, what is Carrie always doing? She's like going into shock like right after this, and he's got like this kind of weepy, like, Ellie, my wife. Why is he a vampire? (laughs) (laughs) What the hell is going on in here? So this is why it's silly to come into a movie that's got what 20 minutes left? 17. Uh (laughs) and be like, yeah, I know what this is about. This is dumb. It is crazy, like, how, just at, from this point on, it's like a fucking freight train heading towards the the ending credits. All right, there's so much deliberation before then. Should they cut their feet off? Are they trapped? How are they going to get out? From here, it's just action. Gordon's like, oh, fuck it. I can't reach the phone. I got to cut my leg off to get out of here. Zep's, like, fully in action. He's trying to murder now. He's not teasing. It's, it's just fucking balls to the wall for this last bit. It, ter- it totally changes the tenor of the film, too. It's not really horror anymore at this point, even though this is the moment where a guy finally cuts his foot off, the thing we've been waiting for for an hour and a half. Oh, it's no no, no shocker that non, not long after this, uh, James Wan was directing a thriller. Yeah, you can tell he's really coming alive again to uh, film a gunfight in a car. And, well... Kind of a car chase. I mean, the cars were stationary. <laughs> the car did not move. It's hilarious, like, uh, hearing Bowsman talk about, like, trying to capture that style because he thought it was, like, so cool. So he really wanted to keep all that when he was making his Saw movies. 
so they were stylistically the same. He he hated what, like when series would change directors and would look completely different. And he thought like, oh, that's such a cool like choice James Wan did to like film things that way. And then he would like talk to James Wan and go like, yeah, we just didn't have money. The cars were just sitting still and we there wasn't a lot happening. So we just spun the camera around somebody and, and then edited it together really fast. Like, it was embarrassing. Oh. Why would you choose to do that? <laughs> I feel sorry for both of us now. But yeah, that car is the thing you think of when you, you think about the Saw MTV style editing. Just, you know, <laughs> it's them desperately trying to hide the fact the car is not moving any capacity. Oh, even the tight, uh, jumpy editing of this movie just comes from the fact that if you stuck on any one shot too long, you'd realize how shitty the sets were. Yeah. Yeah. The funniest it's, part it's... about it to me, though, is we looked at that. A couple years after Saw, we went, oh, it's so over the top. It's so 2000s. It's it's a little try-hard, maybe. But then you watch a lot of more recent films that are so reserved in how they're made. You just kind of go, oh, these are boring. Let's bring back the unnecessary flashes and, <laughs> like, undercranking or overcranking or just weird-ass camera moves. Let's do some weird editing. Yeah. the stuff was actually pretty fun and inventive. It gave a lot of kinetic energy to not a lot happening. Like, it's fun to watch the original short film. And when the camera's spinning around um, in the reverse bear trap scene, just like it does in the final film, but without all the fast cuts and all the ramping and everything, it, it just it's just completely different. It's like weird proto form of itself. Yeah. Oh, not the raw sewage. <laughs> you know you're paying too much for rent if someone just has a caution raw sewage sign posted yeah. in the alleyway. Oh, my flip phone! No! We haven't talked about it much. It's it's tough for us to hear, right? Because we're doing the commentary. But the score for the Saw films, mm. you have like that industrial stuff going on, the normal chase music. We're coming up on Zep's theme, which would just kind of become the theme for the Saw series. And what an iconic bit of music. Something I, I think a lot of films are missing on. They have perfunctory scores that are just kind of moving you about, but they don't leave an impression. God damn. Hello, Zep. What what a piece of music. You can't forget that. Masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, they just managed to accidentally find a music score that embodies what anxiety would sound like. <laughs> and nothing before or really since has sounded close to it. Like maybe some like Hans Zimmer stuff comes like a little bit close, but just this weird industrial meets orchestral, like a, it, it's, you can't quite put your finger on it. It sounds like music that isn't created from like instrumentation. And even some of the later saws where they would remix Zep's theme in different ways, it never comes off as good. Like, I remember there's one, I think, to promote uh, Spiral. They they released, like, a you know, a new remix of Zep's theme, and it was supposed to be, like, a cool marketing thing. Like, check it out, guys! I remember listening to it and go, ooh, this is a bad sign for the movie I'm about to watch. <laughs> this is this is not get me pumped. If they just played the original song, we'd be like, oh, yeah, fuck, let's go to the theaters. Picture this moment is so well-earned. 
in this in this movie. <laughs> like, ah, oh, it just there's something about earned cinematic moments, and there's just having Adam fucking having the reaction any of us would be having. Mike, rank your favorite film amputations. You can't put Gone with the Wind on the list. <laughs> <laughs> For political reasons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Day, of the, Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead's up there? Yeah, I really like that one. It's, that one's a good one. That's kinda, a good one. It's something gooey about it. Like, I don't know why it's like the the chop and then the pull away. Yeah. That, uh, I love the pull away. There's a little bit of, like, giblet hanging on in there. Yeah. Oh, so good. That's a, that's a good one for the gore. Um, I'm very partial to the classics. So Evil Dead 2, the, you know, the chainsaw amputation, and Ash just laughing as he's covered in blood. Classic. Oh, you know, uh, Evil Dead remake amputation. I was going to say, that I'd would like be I like that choice. one a lot. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Well, that one's got like you know the whole ripping and tearing from the jeep on top of her arm. Yeah. Oh, that's that. That one's gnarly. It's a pretty good one. Uh, oh, oh, so we're coming up on. I adore Michael Emerson's reaction coming up to when he opens up the bathroom and finds. Oh my God! He actually cut his foot off. <laughs> like the reaction of Zep, I think is. <laughs> Gold. Ooh. I'm trying to think in, in um Planet Terror, do we actually see the amputation or does Cherry just like wake up in the bed with her leg gone? I don't think, think there's a gore shot. Yeah, I don't think so. I think you just see the aftermath. Also, the amount of times Carrie Way has told me there was no other way while <laughs> limply holding a gun in my face and then weeping. And then he uh, uh, fired off a grappling gun and <laughs> escaped. These these are probably the only decent people in the whole software. I want to franchise. know this neighbor's story. Just these nice neighbors that take in this crying woman in the middle of the night. Also, I, I forgot to point out, the little girl is um, Paz Vega's sister. And then years <laughs> later... We're seeing, we're seeing Emerson's... Oh. oh, God, that's so good. Holy fuck. Just oh, <laughs> a, a footless Carrie Elway screaming at him to die. Um, I, I leave for 20 minutes. It's not, it's, it's not that long of a car ride. But I just find it funny that that's like... Paz Vega's sister, and then Darren Lynn Bowsman would make the sequels to Saw and then work with Paz Vega. <laughs> Something very, like, weird about that. Pocket sand! <laughs> it's a little strange. The MPAA came down fairly hard on the movie just because the implied violence is very strong. Sometimes you'll get that, right? They'll, they'll say, hey, this movie, just the tone is too much. you got to somehow make the tone less bad. Uh, or there's some bits of gore they'll have you take out frame by frame. They said this scene of Adam beating Zep to death with the toilet lid was one they just didn't give a shit about. Like, they didn't get any notes from the ratings board to be like, this is too much. Which is weird, because the MPAA usually hates, um, even if it was bloodless, they hate um, repeating impact. 
Right. I've heard some of the stories where, like, yeah, they asked us to basically, like, take out two of the thuds. Like, just cut two of those out from the loop. Because it's too much. It's too over the top. Also, <laughs> Gordon, to... going, I'm gonna go get help as he bleeds to death. <laughs> <laughs> and since he didn't die in the, you know, according to the other movies, he never got help. No. <laughs> No, by well, the time so, so the way the other get... stories played out, spoilers of those, he steams his leg on the pipe, right, and then basically passes out, um, and Kramer, like, nurses him back to health. And I'm assuming by the time he was, like, back in shape, they'd already killed Adam, so uh, he could have tried. Oh, I like the idea mm-hmm. that by the time he got to the pipe, he'd already decided Adam didn't deserve to live. He's not gonna know. I'm gonna be out there. He's gonna be in there. I knew that guy for, like, a fucking day. He was a dick. He's handsome. He'll be all right. Once He's again, got his to... own saw. He can cut his <laughs> leg off whenever he wants. <laughs> Once again, to be in the theater during this scene, like, I, I just imagine there had to have been, like, gasps throughout the theater whenever he pulls out a fucking tape. I'm slightly sad that the producers didn't have the foresight to go, oh, we should smuggle a camera into some of these showings and just record the audience and put it as like a special feature on the DVD years later. Maybe that's out there. I remember like a couple of years back, someone released footage of a, of a pirated copy of the empire strikes back where someone was recording the audience for Darth Vader's review. Yes. Oh yeah. I want, I want that for saw like some of those big twists. I want to see people reacting to, the sixth sense for the very first time. Sometimes I go back and I rewatch the uh, audience reactions to the end of uh, Avengers Endgame because, like, yeah, this is the last good time at movies. <laughs> just to feel alive. Got that it. was just... that was a hell of a moment. It's going to be so weird talking to like grandkids and then they'd be like, "Grandpa, why do you where are you getting teary?" I'd be like, "Oh, people cared about superheroes. What's about it time?" <laughs> we, like, we all nerd. weren't um, uh, traumatized as a society because of a global pandemic that killed uh, like 500,000 people oh god he's alive god and look at this the birth of a franchise <laughs> every Saw movie following this has been chasing trying to recreate this montage yep this created Saw and also creatively destroyed Saw at the same time. The ripoff of the fucking... Oh, My so blood good. scalp! Oh, man! Which implies that Jigsaw is a makeup guy. <laughs> the glory! One of, his, one of his 18 apprentices had to be good at makeup. Some liquid latex, they're just wizards. Are you dick? Why would you put it in there? See if he got a glow light, so like he wanted him to know a little bit, I guess. Dick move, total dick move from John Kramer. I love Jigsaw's um, facial hair so much. <laughs> the little stripe he's got going on. It's such an interesting choice. So this is a random, but a lot more spiral imagery in this saw than we're used to later in the series. Uh, they yeah. were super pushing the spiral as Jigsaw's symbol for this one. James Wan like loves spirals. Spirals, uh, the actual literal Jigsaw being cut out of people, that kind of goes by the wayside in a lot of the They other completely songs. lost the Jigsaw, yeah. Which is, it's fine, it's not an essential piece, but it feels kind of like, 
oh no, it's kind of big lore. You guys should keep up yeah, with that. It's like, uh, there's, there's, the immediately, like, isn't there cool things you could do with that? Like, what's he doing with the with the jigsaws after oh, like, what a, oh so good what a shot what a fucking shot the scream the helplessness the back lit with the fog the game over the heavy slam everything about that just fucking chef's kiss just screaming like just having that play over the credits oh. well the fact chef's they don't kiss. actually tell you what happens to gordon too so that's a hanging thread but you know fucking <laughs> jigsaws in the hallway with them Leigh Winnell is trapped inside the ba- uh, the bathroom, screaming his heart out in total darkness. Like That's a terrifying ending. Not to mention, I mean, at this point, we've got no backstory. All we know about Jigsaw is what we just learned from the montage, t- telling us uh, incidental dialogue. Like, who is this guy who's suddenly out walking around? <laughs> who just yeah. won? I-, I would like to see more movies kind of like take a little bit of this lesson of you can really kind of enrapture the audience by doing this kind of thing right before the credits and not in a gotcha sort of moment, but you just inform the audience everything they thought they understood about the movie was wrong. And they didn't actually know the movie at all. (laughs) And they just got a bunch of big fucking info dump and then crash. Like, that's how you do a fucking twist. Two comes closest to like really capturing that, but yeah. none of, nothing else could, has really like hit that high. A lot of the later ones feel like, oh, we have to have a twist because that's how it, it works. And because you know crazy. there has to be a twist, it, it's not exciting. It's just more of like, oh, take it off the checklist. You're kind of expecting it to happen at a certain point because it always has to have a twist. To the point where it even ruins character deaths. Like if someone dies, unless it's very obvious they're dead and you see them die on screen, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. all right, that guy's probably coming back or he's like one of the apprentices or something. They they kind of shot themselves in the foot by sticking too hard to that idea. And if they don't do it now, it'll be anticlimactic because that's what you're trained to think is supposed to happen. Maybe there should the movie be can 10 just Saw films. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that these being twist movies has led to it having one of the most complicated continuities of any horror franchise. Yeah, like I can't wait for us to wade through those in the next nine, in the next uh, eight commentaries. Just uh, everyone bring your notebooks, take careful notes. Uh, we are now Detective Taps. It's the only way we're going to get through it, by careful note-taking. But not liking our job so much that Jigsaw decides we should die for it. It's it's a balancing act of work life. Folks at home, I I I'm a big fucking Saw fan. I love Saw. Um, you're gonna have to I, if you are also a big fan of Saw. I hope you're prepared for how much I hate the character of Hoffman. Oh God, I'm on Team Strom. So yeah, that guy pissed me off. Fuck oh, you, Costas Mandalore. I was about to say, once these commentaries <laughs> hit their Costas Mandalore episodes or, or its era. The man with the weakest game over ever. Ugh. Game over. I'm imagining the day these these podcasts somehow get to his office. He's like, oh, they're talking stuff about Saw. I love my fans. And he listens to this. Like, oh. Mm. We, could, we could have had take. Dina Meyer as the ongoing character, but no, they decided to do that as a throwaway twist at the beginning of a movie. Yeah, we think we're going well, and then we had to go on that downer note. We, we just I'm had sorry, like, well, the Because now the movie's over, and we're like, oh, wait, we got the... It, we we do have we still have two and three. 
So we'll always have two and three in our hearts. Well, and folks, then things start getting shaky. Yeah, and there's a lot of shake to go through, baby. <sighs> Anyways, folks, that's been Saw. I hope you come back and join us for, hopefully we have the guts to stick through the rest of them. If we don't, <laughs> I won't feel too bad because I won't have to drink any more Malort. So it's a real push and pull kind of thing for me mentally. If you would like to hear more of Box Office Pulp, you can always find us at boxofficepulp.com. We're on Twitter at Box Office Pulp for the moment until that thing gets somehow even worse. They keep finding new ways. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, I think we have a derelict Tumblr, but don't go there. We don't pay attention to it. Uh, and, well, Stitcher's gone, but you can always find us on Google Music, uh, Spotify, most of the other places where podcasts exist. We're around. Give us a Google. And if you would like for Cody to die of alcohol poisoning, uh, give this episode a review and rating. Unfortunately, Jamie, uh, Jepson's Malort is only 70 proof. So it would take a lot to really kill me. And I think my body would shut down before I drank enough of that to actually murder me. Uh, someone would have to funnel it down my throat, like in that Harry Potter scene where they're just forcing Dumbledore to like drink the magic water. That's that's what we're looking at here. Oh, I love the look on his face. Um, I, can, and the next <laughs> one, can you dip a cigarette in it and then smoke it? Uh, I think it'd be much funnier if it were a cigar, even though that's not canonical. Canonical. Can't even say canologically. It. Canologically <laughs> correct. What an awesome fake word you discovered. <laughs> I'm just saying, like a big old stogie and a Jepson's Malort. Oh man, I would, I would just feel like death the next day. My throat wouldn't make. Would it you be wearing great. a top hat? And I, I'm just imagining, Jamie. I'm just imagining Rich Homer. <laughs> <laughs> That's where my mind went. Duff Brew, Jepson's Malort. As long as I've got my record car, I'm all right. Anyway, end the episode, Cody. Well, folks, that's a wrap. Let's get the hell out of here. Jamie, play us off with a sad rendition of Saw. Now imagine your jigsaw hiking down the road like it's the end, uh, the end credits for The Incredible Hulk. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I'm going to have to think of a new game over like song for Jamie to sing each time. Because we did the sad one, that's obvious. It's going to be like a ragtime thing next time, I think. It doesn't work as well, does it? Well, fuck you, Cody. <laughs> oh no, now I'm going to be in a Jamie Jigsaw trap. <laughs> oh, I would make the shittiest Jigsaw traps. Like, I'd <laughs> give up halfway through. It's mostly made of hot dogs. <laughs> There's just a gun with a sign that says, shoot yourself. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.